0: Hi there! Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Some Other Sphere. If you enjoy it, please leave a rating on your preferred podcast platform, or like and share it on social media, as it all really helps to promote the show. If you'd like to support the upkeep of the podcast as well, you can donate via Ko-fi. Go to ko-fi.com forward slash Some Other Sphere Podcast to find out more. Thank you again, and now, on to the episode! Hello, and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time. Hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is Dr. Diana Walsh Pazulka, who joined me to talk about her new book, Encounters Experiences with Non Human Intelligences. Diana is a Professor of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. She writes and teaches about the history of the Catholic tradition and new religious movements, particularly as they intersect with digital technologies. Her published work has explored topics as varied as from the Catholic doctrine of purgatory, to UFOs, to human potentials, and has received international acclaim with her 2019 book, American Cosmic, especially offering an intriguing insight into the religiosity of the UFO mystery. In Encounters, she writes about the work of experts across a range of fields who are endeavoring to connect humanity with unknown life forms and help to encourage a rethink of some of our most basic assumptions about life and its manifestations beyond our experiences. I begin the interview by talking with Diana about her first book on the subject of purgatory and how researching and writing that led on to her other writing projects such as American Cosmic. We then move on to her new book and talk about some of the people featured in it and the work they are doing to help reorientate our understanding of the world around us. It was a very interesting chat. Enjoy! Diana, welcome to the podcast.
1: Well, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here.
0: Your background is as a professor of religious studies, and your first book was about purgatory. Did the writing and researching that first book set the groundwork for American Cosmic and your latest work?
1: Yes, it did. And I was surprised that it did frankly um like most people i would never think that a person who studies the history of religions would then shift their research into modern ideas and events related to ufos it just didn't it wasn't a uh intuitive move right (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, so it's kind of strange once you learn how it happened though it becomes it makes a lot more sense and actually it makes a lot of sense so this is this is what happened. Um, so I've been studying religion, um, really my whole life, actually, and uh, I finally decided in my twenties to go to graduate school to study it because I was reading about philosophy and religion in my off hours. I was uh, working in the nineteen nineties um, in California, where I'm from, and this was during the dot com boom. So I I was really interested to see how technology was impacting kind of how people believed in sacred things and stuff like that. So, um, so I went to graduate school. I, uh, I went into an academic program that was uh, both at UC Berkeley and affiliated with the Jesuit School of Theology. And uh, they have a specific academic program for people interested in religion. Um, and so anyway, I, I did that. And, um, and then after that, I went to Syracuse University to get my Ph.D., uh, and there, you could uh, you could bring in philosophy and questions of philosophy into your study of religion. So I focused in Catholic history because that's what I knew best and was interested in. And in terms of looking at the doctrine of purgatory in the Catholic Church, this is a doctrine that has been around for a thousand years, and there were uh, there were devotional practices associated with this idea that when people died and their souls weren't good enough to go to heaven they would you know where would they go and this idea was that in the catholic culture they went into this space called purgatory and and this was a you know you see some of this in like tibetan buddhism or in buddhism like the bardo and you know different different ideas of afterlife destinations or or other world destinations for either the soul or the spirit, the Atman, you know, whatever you want to call it, uh, that thing which which lingers on after death of the physical body. And so what I did was I went through a lot of, it took me a long time to do this, but I did a survey of the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. And this brought me to archives and looking at manuscripts from 1200 on the way up to 1800. And this was, you know, mostly European Catholicism. And I looked at a lot of old records. And what I found were these uh, reports of orbs, aerial objects, things like this. And people would give them different interpretations. Say if they were from the 1800s in France, they would think that these were souls from purgatory that needed to be prayed back into purgatory. Um, If it was from like the 1200s, they would consider these to be angels or demons you know they would give them interpretations that were religious and so i i had not thought of ufos in fact i was a, a person who actually was a disbeliever in ufos never thought about it never on my radar wasn't interested in the x-files hadn't seen steven spielberg's um you know movie close encounters didn't know who alan Hynek was none of these you know no, nothing nothing Um, I was just immersed in the study of religion. And so I had this, after my book was published on purgatory, I was on to the next book. And, but I did have this log of reports from Catholics from, you know, 1200 on up. And I showed it to a friend of mine. And I said, what do you think these are? These are so strange. So he read through them. And he said to me, looked at me and he said, this reminds me of a Steven Spielberg film, like, you know, UFOs. And I thought, you know, I thought he was crazy. I thought you are crazy. Um, But there was a, a, coincidentally, there was a UFO conference at in my town and I went to it that week. And there I I heard people who had seen UFOs, they're called experiencers. And they talked about, you know, they, they seemed like they came, it was like people in my log came to life. And I realized that this was a contemporary thing that was happening And it was very similar to the patterns of these reports that I had been studying. So I decided to to start to research it. And um, that's how it started. That's how my work in purgatory brought me to looking at contemporary UFO accounts.
0: Right. Okay. And so what was it like immersing yourself in the world of ufology? Because that's something that you, you write about in American Cosmic you met a lot of people researching that book what was that experience like going from theology into into ufology
1: yes it was definitely very strange so um of course when you're doing work in Catholic history you don't meet people from the FBI or the CIA (laughs) Usually. Okay. So right away, honestly, when I first started to map out what I was going to do, I thought that it would be easy. So, people in my profession, you know, we do have people like um who study UFOs, right? So, um, we have, you know, scholars that study realism or uh, Nation of Islam and write books about it, right? So, it wasn't that the topic itself was not something that I hadn't heard or, you know, was, wasn't unprecedented for someone like me to do this kind of work. What became somewhat unprecedented was right away. I found myself um, talking with the people in the invisible college. It's known as you know, the, the scientists of the invisible college. And then beyond that, talking to people in what I described in American cosmic as the fight club, which I think rightly now with the congressional hearings about UFOs, these would be the people that were, you know, that are talking to the whistleblowers, you know, people in the legacy programs. Um, I didn't have that language then. This was in 2013, but there's no doubt in my mind now, when I look back, that these are the people i met. And I tried to understand what was happening because these people truly believed that they were studying actual UFOs and that they had physical debris from crashes and things like that. To me, and this was absolutely astounding that these people would actually believe this. Um, still a disbeliever, right? So all through my book about my first book about UFOs, American Cosmic, all through that book, I'm maintaining my perspective of disbelief, neither believing nor disbelieving, but basically documenting the people and the communities. Who believe you know? These are people who are uh, well credentialed. You could call them like James. I called. I use pseudonyms in that work. I called uh, Dr. Gary Nolan. Has since come out as a person who studies UFOs, and he's affiliated with Stanford University, Um, a very you know distinguished professor. And um, so I called him James in in that book, and then I have some other people that I use pseudonyms for in the book who have to still remain anonymous. Um, anyway, so so yes, yeah, so it was uh, right away. Um, I was immersed in this community and quickly understood, of course, that disinformation of the topic had been an ongoing thing since the 1940s. Um, and so, you know, I I had to do a lot of catch up basically, I had to read everything I possibly could on the history of UFOs from his, but I also had to develop a new strategy because of the disinformation. So it was really, really an interesting time. It, I was already a full professor when I did it. So I, I wasn't worried about pushback from my university. Um, I wouldn't have pushback. Uh, I knew that. So I felt full steam ahead right but I just didn't anticipate the kinds of people that I would meet I never would have anticipated that
0: of course yeah that's understandable I know in American Cosmic you write about visiting a a crash site um what was that like that experience
1: yes so I opened my book with that because I thought that was probably (laughs) if I'm gonna if I'm gonna bring the reader full fully into my experience that would be the place I start so I was so early on I had been um, introduced to who I call him Tyler D Um, Tyler this man who appears to be legacy program Um, I don't know but it looks like it in retrospect and he is um, what would you call it almost like the custodian of this crash site he calls it a donation site and i'd you know i'd been introduced to him he had a lot of affiliations that were really interesting um you know really into you know he was part of the space shuttle program uh during its full duration in the united states and he's a mission controller and he was also strangely a biotechnological a biotechnology entrepreneur I mean, none of these things made sense to me. Now they make perfect sense. But then I couldn't understand it at all. Um, He seemed very wealthy. He, you know, he could, uh, you know, he would do private jets and things like that. So he just didn't seem like a normal rocket scientist guy to me. And so I kind of stayed away from him as much as I possibly could. But he did tell me that he understood that first he wanted to work with me. I didn't seek him out to work with him. And I was, I wondered about that. He said that in his field, which was, you know, in his hobby, he called it his hobby, looking at UFOs and that type of thing, that he thought that the most innovative research was going to come from people in my field. And I thought that was interesting. So now I understand perfectly why he said that. But at the time, I didn't. So um, it took me about a year and a half to actually meet him in person. But when I did meet him, he said that, you know, we had a lot of this correspondence and he said that he thought I didn't believe in UFOs. And I told him that I don't think he understood my uh, religious studies methods, which is that we don't believe or disbelieve. Um, But so I tried to explain it to him. But he said, I can show you things that will make you believe. Right. And so he said, one of them is this place in New Mexico that you should go to. I'll take you there. And so. I told him that I would go and it was this alleged crash site of a UFO. One of the crash sites of the 1940s. It wasn't Roswell. Um, And we would go there and I would have to be blindfolded to be taken into this place. And then we would look for debris. And, you know, I I thought it was pretty crazy to tell you the truth. Um, But I also knew that based on what I knew about this person, he was completely credible in what he did. So I knew I had to follow up on it, but I, I asked him if I could bring, uh, Gary Nolan with me. And he said, yes. Um, so we both went, we were blindfolded and we headed out there. And, um, so we did get debris and we went through the airport back, you know, with it and Gary got stopped and hit, you know, searched and Tyler said this would happen. Um. It, sh- it happened and so after that Gary went on to analyze the parts and you know look at them with the expertise that he
0: has wow yeah I mean that must have been um an interesting experience like I can't quite imagine <laughs> what it was like going through an airport <laughs> with um with that material <laughs>
1: I I didn't want the material at all at all. I didn't. They're like, do you want this part of it or whatever? I said, no, I do not want this material. Um, You get it all, Gary. And 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 then um, before we got to the airport in the car, Tyler told us what was going to happen. He said, okay, Diana and I, we're going to make it through. No problem. Uh, We'll wait for you. James, you know, Gary. Um because this is what's going to happen. And he kind of went through all and it happened exactly like he said it would. And by the way, when he goes through airports, he doesn't have to go through the regular check. He just goes through, they let him
0: through. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, um I guess a, a question at this point would be if if you if, if something crashes, um a craft from outer space, why why do you think it crashes?
1: Yeah, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't even think something crashed. So, mm-hmm. you know, the the kinds of questions like that that you would ask me. These aren't the kinds of questions that I mean, obviously I would ask that question, but I'm not ask I'm not asking questions about is this real or not. The mm-hmm. you know, I'm I'm a, I'm doing a meta look at this. Like I'm not looking at, you know, did they, you know, um these obvious questions did it crash or not yeah it seems ridiculous why would something like that crash so i never you know I'm, these are not the questions i'm asking if indeed this is a setup you know for me cuz cuz of course i noticed that lots of people were being used as disinformation agents against their knowledge like they didn't know and I, obviously i thought okay i'm obviously a person who would be used in this way i'd be planted with information in order to disseminate the story. And um, I wrote that in the book too. And the book, by the way, is, is addressed to academics. It's not, <laughs> I was surprised when it became kind of, you know, a crossover. So into the general public basically. So the question is, um, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I don't think that, I don't even know if I believe it was a crashed UFO, right? I don't believe or disbelieve. Still, I'm not a believer at this point. Yeah. Nor do I disbelieve. So, so you have to understand that's my position before we get into these specific questions that you know people will ask. Why don't they land on the White House lawn, or you know, things like that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. What I was trying to get at, I think, is that as you know, as someone like yourself who has studied uh, religions, um, the value of uh of a story in in those sorts of things is can't be underestimated if you you've put something like the bible the a, a lot a lot of the, sort of the messages that are in that are, are stories and and you mentioned there the, the sorry the story element of a crashed ufo i mean do you do you think that even if a ufo crash is fabricated the the story that it creates and the interest that it creates can have a a positive value. Is it the story more important than how it got put together?
1: Okay. So yes. So let's look at it from that perspective. So the same thing could be said for, you know, when people, so we're, so people who study religion in religious studies are interested in how religions impact societies and cultures. Okay. So, all right. So whether or not Jesus actually walks on the water, you know, whether we can prove that or not prove that is beside the point of millions, billions of people believe it. Okay. So, and that's going to impact culture. All right. So at that level, that's kind of the level I'm looking at. And if you're looking at the question, say people ask the question of the creation story in Genesis. Okay. So God creates humans. But if God has ultimate knowledge, why would he then wipe them out with this giant flood? Okay, why do you think God would do that? Well, no, those aren't the questions that we're asking, because we actually don't believe in that at that level. (laughs) I hope that you understand that. So when I'm looking at these people that believe that a UFO crashed at this site in the 1940s, what I'm doing is I'm looking at this from... A pretty long history. And if you go back to Greece, you also see a similar mythology, really, a similar story. And I'm not saying mythology like it's not true. What I'm saying is that there's a recurring theme that we get technology from super, like titans or gods, and that this is the latest version of that theme and it's scientists who are doing it now. The scientists are the people who are basically the you know the people at the very center of this um I see it was really hard for even to even to call it a mythology. Like I don't even know what it is now. It's a new form of mythology because it's you know look like what's happening. It's being ratified by these scientists. The scientists are the people who are studying it. So yeah, so it's a pretty interesting um, new religiosity, new belief system. Um, So I guess knowing that, can you ask your question (laughs) again (laughs) so that, you know, we can, I'll be better able, because I'm not going to answer the questions by assuming that there's actually a UFO that crashed. Okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, I I completely understand that. Um, So let's get on to your new book, Encounters. Um, How did that come about after American Cosmic?
1: Well, what happened after American Cosmic was a series of disclosures by the U.S. government about UFO legacy programs and studying UFOs, which... I had covered in American cosmic, but at that point in 2019, when it was published, this was all still something that was not out to the public. So in June of 2021, the Pentagon released a report on its study of UFOs and basically acknowledged that the government was studying anomalous phenomena in the sky, aerial phenomena. And so this of course was interesting and amazing um, especially for this type of belief system because it made it seem like it's real and so it impacted the belief that people had in ufos and what i found in my research is that whatever people have been seeing um, people have been seeing things in the sky whether they're the same things or whether they are different things there are they a variety things most probably However, this has been going on since the, you know, before written history even. Um, So that's nothing new. But what is new is the centralization of the knowledge of this in the military. This is what I saw happening after my book was published. I was like, okay, there's almost like a, almost like the, if you look at the history of the Catholic church, right? uh, There were varieties of Christian, of belief. Uh, Christian beliefs that circulated up until the Council of Nicaea, right? In the fourth century. And then what happened was there was a centralization of belief and a suppression of the other belief systems. So it seemed to me that this was happening here for UFOs as well. So if we look at UFOs, you know, belief in UFOs as as a rising system of belief, uh, almost like a new type of religion, um, you see this happening. The centralization is happening in the U S military. So I was interested in that, but I was also interested in going back to the people who actually had these experiences. Uh, So I took some of the most credible, you know, now I'd been studying this for 10 years. So I took some of the most credible witnesses that I knew of and I interviewed them. And what I was uh, looking at was I was looking at how this you know, how do they perceive this contact that they're having? Like, what do they think about this? And and what can we learn from that? What kinds of patterns do we see? And it's not what we're getting told right now. You know, what we're looking at right now is, is the UFO is kind of like a uh, advanced machine, right? And a lot of people want to back engineer it for technology, for national supremacy and things like that. Um, so that's the story we're seeing right now. And, but if you go back to the witnesses, it's a completely different story. So that's what my goal was in Encounters was basically to, to, you know, if we went back to the Council of Nicaea, which, which documents would have been burned? Which stories would have been suppressed? Well, uh, the Gnostics, you know, <laughs> the people who were considered heretical. So it seems that today, the equivalent, I was giving voice to those, those people.
0: Mm, yeah. Um, in regard to the people you interviewed, was there an example that most stood out for you in, in, in that regard, in terms of being something that challenged the preconceived ideas that, um, have come about from this, this sort of centralization?
1: Yes. Okay. So every single person I interviewed, I thought was amazing and had an amazing story. So I start, and a lot of them don't, they're not, you know, I'm, I don't use pseudonyms except for one person in the book. So I don't have to use pseudonyms because the, the quote unquote disclosure that's happening right now has made it, better for people who are experiencers and who basically have like university positions you know and credible jobs to actually say yeah this is my experience and I'm okay with talking about it so um so the first person who I open the book with is Dr. Ea Whiteley um she's at University College London and she's a what's called a space psychologist she actually helped create that field and what she does is she helps train pilots and astronauts and when she trains astronauts what she's doing is she's helping them acclimate to extreme states of you know off-earth states and she also she's doing a lot of really interesting work uh somewhat along the lines of tyler um so i thought it was really interesting so i wanted to interview her and so she her story and research constitutes the first and second chapters of the book, where I basically outline that this person is interfacing with the people that are out in space. And there's a new consciousness of space travel basically. And, you know, and she basically identifies it and how to, how to acclimate to it. And I give some examples too about, what happens when people go out into space. And these examples come from the testimonies of astronauts of people out in space, but also like William Shatner, who of course is the actor who played captain Kirk, you know, he, he went out in space, you know, with Jeff Bezos and it, it was, you know, it became viral. What happened to him? So he was pretty devastated by his trip. And so what's interesting is that, you know, there's this idea of this thing called the overview effect that when you go out into space and you see earth from the vantage point of being off of earth, it's like this religious experience, but it's not a happy experience. Actually, it's really, you know, we oh, uh, you know, the the data shows that it's actually very, very disturbing. And so Dr. Ia, that's what she's doing. She's helping people deal with this, this, you know, this consciousness. So I talk a lot about the consciousness that, that now we're at this point as you know, because we're so connected people all over the world, we're so connected now through our technologies and media that we share, you know, we share our experiences with each other now. And, and we, and what's happening is that at the same time that as a, a people we're leaving Earth and going into space, we've also developed these technologies that bring us into these virtual spaces as well. So we're going into spaces that we've never been in before. And so it's it's shifting, in a sense, shifting how we think. It's shifting our states of mind. And so she's I thought that she was a really good person to, to elucidate and reveal how, you know, what's what the effects are for, for that from that.
0: Yeah, the those two chapters of the book are a really great way to open up, I think, what you're writing about. Um it was interesting to read about the effect that, that space travel can have on astronauts in terms of what they experience and encountering the the numinous. Um is that something that's happening to people who are having these sorts of experiences, these encounters? Are they are they undergoing sort of a similar experience
1: yes they are so I open up this these chapters with Ia because she sets the tone in a pretty academic but also accessible way for some things that are going to get pretty weird and that's the types of belief systems that these people have and they they all have a pattern that recurs and so you know by this time now after 10 years of junior this research i basically have thousands of testimonies and reports from people who don't know each other sometimes don't believe you know never believed in ufo's don't know what's happening and they report very similar experiences so what i did was i just picked the ones that i thought were the examples the best examples of this um, and most accessible, so yeah. So they're having these experiences. I mean, I end the book with this man who, you know, sees a, a UFO in Brockport, New York, in 1967 when he's a kid. Right, so he's a teenager when he sees it, and it completely changes his life. And it's a it's a UFO that is a lots of people saw it. There's lots of different reports. I include all you know those reports. Um, it it makes it into Jacques Vallée's Wonders of the Sky, uh, one of the reports there. So it's a really really um, you know well known UFO, and and he what happens to him is really indicative of what happens to every single person in the book. And what's really interesting is that we've we we do not really unless you're in religious studies you think it's just really random weird stuff that's basically you know you think oh it's all just a bunch of paranormal godly good kind of stuff right but if you're in religious studies you go oh this has a long tradition and it's just that as secular cultures we've lost the language to be able to describe these experiences therefore what i do in encounters is i reacquaint people with the language that helps people understand. Hey, you know what are they going through? Um, I think it's significant that Iya grew up in uh, communist USSR, um, and she didn't. She wasn't. She didn't learn about religion. She didn't have uh, any religion to fall back on. So what she fell back on was science and a cosmist tradition of understanding beings and things like that. And, you know, an idea that there's uh, like a, not, there's a network that you can almost like a Akashic records type network that you can hook into, you know, but she uses science in order to like break it all down. And so I thought that was really interesting because when I do talk to her and, and I use, you know, language of religion, I say, Oh, that sounds like a monastic tradition. She says, what's a monastic tradition? Whereas, you know, people in less secularized countries would understand that there are monks and nuns and they've had these traditions and they did these things in order to, you know, access what they consider to be a divinity. And every single person in that book has, in some sense, accessed that and used these certain ways of accessing it. But Ia is using the language of science because this is the language that was accessible to her.
0: Yeah, Um it, it's interesting you, you mentioned there the, the the secular tradition in the West, and in the introduction to two encounters, you talk about a, a reorientation of of spirituality. Do you think that some of the encounters that people have are are happening because there isn't that tradition to describe them? So these these phenomena are happening. To help that happen,
1: okay, so I don't know if the phenomena are happening to help it. I think the phenomena are happening as much as they have been before. I think what's happening is that people have lost the ability, and what I'm talking about people I'm talking about specific people, so um let's talk about the next chapters after uh the like I think they're wait, I think it's like five and six, I'm not entirely sure, but it's These are the chapters that talk about Jose's experiences Mm -hmm. and, you know, his experiences come from a Christian Mexican American tradition. And so he doesn't at all think of the UFO apart from that tradition. So he already has a, a language to talk about it. And so I included those chapters to show that, you know, the kind of modern idea of the UFO isn't just the only one like there are different ideas of the ufo and in, in even within different cultures in the, the united states and that you know to say what the ufo is is we shouldn't be doing that because the ufo is different for you know different cultures and so um you know so i use his chapters to show that within his culture he already has a system in place to discuss what it you know, what it is and he doesn't like the military system talking about the ufo because it doesn't seem like the ufo that he knows right but i mean he's looking he's looking at the ufo um and experiences it as much as say those pilots that talk about it but the pilots that see it you know they have their own traditions but they're not that tradition yeah so you see how the language changes depending on which culture you're you're talking about, but it's the same phenomena. They're see, seeing similar things, um, but they're just using a different tradition to to talk about it and language, and it makes a big difference too. By the way,
0: yeah, I I, I understand. Um, yeah, I enjoyed that chapter five, the the soldier, which was about Hoseki talk a little bit more about him and his background and his experiences
1: yeah sure so I had a lot of positive feedback about that from a lot of people who read advanced copies and so um Jose is actually a former student and I met him about 10 years ago and he's he came directly from serving in Afghanistan as a marine so he was really young. He came on board my department and immediately started a group for veterans. Um, here we have a high suicide rate among veterans, and uh, he was all—he was immediately just like a leader, you know. And he learned philosophy, just like he like he lived it. You know, he lived philosophy, just knew it intrinsically, and a lot of it he learned literally on the battlefield. I have to say, which is really significant. Um, and he, you know, some of the philosophers that he really enjoyed reading about were Aristotle and Tellier de Chardon, who was the Jesuit priest, philosopher, anthropologist, who created this idea. He wasn't the one who coined it. Um, it was a Russian, I believe. And I can't remember the name, unfortunately. But he used this term, the new sphere, which he predicted was, you know, it seems really similar to the Internet. He predicted it in the nineteen twenties, early twentieth century, and he said, you know, this is gonna happen. But I don't think he was talking about the internet. So anyway, so um he felt it on a battlefield, like chardon feels this on the battlefield. So Jose recognizes that he also had this similar experience, but he he was already plugged into it. He already knew it. And it would provide him with information that saved his life while he was on the front. So a lot of some of his friends sadly were killed. Um, But he would miss um, stepping on, you know, uh, the bomb or the sniper attack or, you know, he would, because he would get information that would just pop into his mind. And within this, this, so he grew up also in, um, in Artesia, which is a town outside of Roswell. And his father was in a cartel, La Ma. And it was a terrible, like, for people who aren't in that world, we would look in it and think, this is how did this person survive this world? Um, His family would sleep on a mattress underneath their window on the floor so the drive-by shootings wouldn't kill them during the night. And the the town he lived in was called Drive-By City. Because of so many drive-by shootings so this is the environment it was it was a highly religious environment as well his parents you know they prayed hours every day um, his father was was out left the cartel okay um, so during this time and and all the time that I've known him he's had sightings of UFOs but he wouldn't interpret them like um like other people, like he wouldn't post them on social media and say, what's this, you know, this is, you know, and then say, Oh, it's a UFO or whatnot. For him, it was just part of a worldview in which the supernatural is actually natural. It's not super. It's just part of life. And we deal with these, these beings that aren't necessarily humans and we it's like a, a, a battlefield, so not only is there a battlefield a real one, but there's also a spiritual battlefield and if you start to see UFOs, <laughs> he thinks you know you might be opened up now to understanding a spiritual battlefield so so this is the this you know and i'm uh and I learned a lot from Jose I mean he's really a brilliant philosopher
0: hmm in in that chapter that you write about. Two events that he experienced uh el demonio and los demonios um the first one it sounds similar to people reporting um shadow people and 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 that seems like a something that people would report across the world uh, in terms of a non human entity that they might see um when a phenomenon when an experience seems to have that similarity across many cultures for you does that indicate some sort of objectivity or is it still ultimately a personal experience that is best interpreted as that
1: okay yeah so the question of um you know is this kind of a trans-historical objective phenomenon that people are just giving different language to you based on their time and you know culture um, and that, okay, so that's a great question. Uh, all right, so I could give you my personal opinion, <laughs> which I don't think first, I'm not sure we can prove one way or the other, okay? So that takes it off the table in terms of like you know, giving some proof. However, I think, see, of course I'm noticing this as I'm receiving so many reports, uh, from people, I have a scientist in that book, the only person with a pseudonym in the book he reports seeing something very similar describes it in the same language this person is from a different country um just you know has a scientific background and is describing something evil that has this you know this shadowy dark gradient you know kind of gray black colors it doesn't really have any you know when he 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 says that he's you know he's having a vision and he tries to Kill it, and it doesn't really have any body and form like that. And then Jose reports almost the exact same thing, and that's why I included those both those experiences in the book because I wanted to show you know you have someone from Australia, scientists discussing something that uh, someone from you know Mexican community in the United States is describing exactly using the exact same terms, so. Uh, you know, I'm, Rick, I'm still undecided about what this is, <laughs> but I think that we need to pay attention to that because so many people have reported these things and their experiences with them.
0: Mm, absolutely.
1: I I have my personal opinion. Heck yeah. I don't want that thing near me. I believe in it. <laughs> you know, I, I've known so many people have said, oh yeah, I've had this experience and so, yes, I think that it's a real human experience that people have and often indicating something not very nice, something not benign. And, yeah, so, you know, when people ask me, oh, would you like to go to this place, you know, where we see these things? And no, I don't want to go there. <laughs> I've had that much. I've had those many experiences that I that I can honestly say no.
0: <laughs> yeah, I can completely agree. I i i wouldn't enjoy that either and um, what i'm interested in is that and, and this is something that i've talked about with other guests is ultimately when you're interested in things like this the i think a lot of the time people have a realization that it's not about defining what something might be not giving it an identity or but it's, it's about the the mystery itself and what it what it represents and i suppose i'm what i was trying to get at is that sometimes with the things that people see and the entities they they encounter there's there's something so unique about the way they look that it feels as though there's something there in in the makeup of those entities that's almost like a clue as to what's going on and why and why that person has seen them so that that was why i was I'll ask that question just to to get your um, viewpoint on that.
1: I think it's a great question. And of course, it's probably one of the most important questions, I think, is, you know, if these things exist, like what place do they exist in? You know, are they, they seem to be somewhat almost real, but imaginary at the same time. And also, you know, they appear in the iconography an iconography of so many different cultures as well these kinds of scary dark entities shadow people we call them now um yeah they're really frightening
0: mm. i was very interested that you wrote about uh pierre tellard de chardin uh, in that chapter he's not somebody i know very much about but i i know a little about the noosphere so How does that idea relate to what you're writing about in Encounters?
1: It's one of the themes that came up again and again and again in the testimonies from um, the experiencers. People discussing a sphere of knowledge that, like I said, in the esoteric traditions, people would call it the Akashic records or something like that. But these people would have would be, it would be like an internet, but an organic one. And people would naturally be a part of it. And they would get information that would be helpful to them. And so uh, almost everybody within the book has, you know, feels as if they're, they're connected. Some of them are very specifically talking about it, like Simone, you know, she's talking about this newest fear, literally. And you know, that we can get information from it. And Jose talks about it too, because Deschardons provided the language that he needed because he experienced it his whole life and he felt it on the battlefield. But it wasn't until he read Deschardons um, writings that he recognized it and it gave him, it provided a language and a framework for him to talk about it. So this recurs again and again. And I needed to talk about it because it's important or else it wouldn't be recurring. Right. And so I'm not going to leave it out. So I don't know exactly what it is. All I, all I'm doing is basically describing what they're saying. And I'm giving it his, I'm talking about the historical tradition that where people have talked about something like this, even Francis of Assisi described feelings like this. Um, when he was alive um so you know from some of the original sources of catholic mystics they're also describing something very similar
0: yeah yeah i i can see that um i just want to go back to the beginning of the book and yeah whiteley in the second chapter you you write about a, a project that that she has put together called the global newborn language project i, I found that very interesting, uh, can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes, it's fascinating so this is something that she's working on, so this has to do with the network we were just describing and what she says is that well she uses a lot of um, voice rec- voice technologies to help astronauts when they're far away from Earth um, she's able to identify when they're having panic attacks or something like that because oh she wouldn't want me to use that word, by the way, <laughs> they are very, astronauts are very well-trained. So a lot of times they're not recognizing if they're having um, anxiety and she can recognize it through the technologies she uses to, you know, decipher what's happening with them on a physiological and mental state, their states. So through this, she, what she's done is she had children and she was, you know, she wanted to read to them. So she would find these books and she said she couldn't believe how inadequate they were to help children in their first six months of life, you know, introduce them to the world in which they live. And she said, we've done so many amazing things. Um, You know, the architecture and the, the beautiful like Fibonacci, you know, uh, you know, the code in almost everything and just how beautiful it is. And, you know, we we can't introduce that to these kids because we don't have any decent books. And so she decided she, what she was going to do was she was going to create this for her own kids, which she did. And that led her and then her friends said, what do you have there, you know, and she realized that her kids, when she would introduce them to, let's say she would take the sounds of the thin back whale okay and she would use the technology that she created for space you know space research and she would identify that this she would graph the sounds and they would they would be beautiful like like uh crystals right uh snowflakes they would look so beautiful so she would put the sounds next to the graph the graphene that she would use that would look like a beautiful snowflake or something like that, and she noticed that the child's concentration um, would change, and and it, they would actually concentrate on. It. So she started to work with some neonatologists, uh, people who work with babies, and she recognized that er, during the first six months, there are a lot of, uh, you know, there are neural networks happening. And that if you can get in on that, you can actually identify what she calls an Earth language because it's not actually French or Japanese or English. It's actually an Earth language, and that if they if the babies can can develop that by the time they're six months old, then later on when they meet each other, they're you know they can take it from there. She said. So basically, says that you know she's preparing a generation for like a global nation independent language. And so this is her project that she's working on right now. She's got a lot of interests. Um, and by the way, the books are, I bought some books. I was gonna give them to friends of mine who had children. And I was reading through one and I have a 14 year old daughter who came and she sat down. And she couldn't stop reading it. It's in black and white, but she said that the babies don't, can't see color yet. So, you know, if you're showing a baby a book with color pictures you know they're not going to recognize it until they're older than that so so all of the graphings right now are in black and white which is better for the babies to see and so this is the project that she's working on
0: wow so it's it's a visual language
1: um it's a perceptual language so not just visual but audit you know it's auditory as well
0: right okay and it would be is it for just for newborns at the moment.
1: It's newborns because people like you and me <laughs> we're past the age where we can uh, de- yeah. develop those neural networks. So she says it's like the first six months of life. You have to get the baby in at that point.
0: So what might that mean if if this was something that would, to become more popular and I'm I'm just trying to envisage what it might mean in terms of how humans interact with each other? It sounds like a fascinating opportunity to to change that.
1: Yeah, I think that what she's thinking, first off, you have to understand that, you know, she's coming from a really interesting tradition of um like the when I talk about the cosmists, you know, I'm talking about like the tradition of Russian cosmists or, you know, Re- European cosmists who believe that, you know, humans are are going to be spacefaring. some point and we but we have to be comfortable on earth right and so what she's doing is she's trying to create this language her goal is to create a language that unites people um and doesn't divide us because you know obviously that's that's a worthy goal (laughs) and so that's that's her goal and that's what she's she's hoping to accomplish at some point. She knows she's just a small cog in the wheel of doing this, but um when she like she has also spent time looking at how our technologies, especially AI technologies at this point, will allow us to communicate with say dolphins and whales and stuff. And she's basically saying that we have so many assumptions about what language is like that we don't we can't at this point with our own ingenuity, you know, talk to them because we don't understand that their language is like 3D. It's three dimensional language. You know, it's just different than just the audio that, you know, we hear. Um, And so she, she's describes things that are really, I would call them like a frontier science, you know, where, you know, it's really difficult to understand her. It took like me, I don't know, maybe like two years to really grok what she was getting at. And I was like, finally, I'm like, wow, that's high level. (laughs) So, um, yeah. So I think it's really interesting what she's doing. And, and I think that's what, you know, her, that's what she's hoping to accomplish. It's not like she's having these grand ideas that, you know, the, the kids will learn this, but I think she's just saying, Some kids will learn it, and that will be good.
0: Hmm. When I was reading that early part of uh, of the book, you'd mentioned William Shatner, and then you were talking about uh, whale language. It it made me think of uh, Star Trek IV when (laughs) when the alien probe turns up and wants to speak to the humpback whales, but there aren't any left, so we have to Captain Kirk and his crew have to go back in time and get some.
1: You know what? After that, I had remembered that that came out like a long time ago so I decided to rewatch it and honestly that's my favorite Star Trek episode now.
0: Yeah it's it's great I, I love that film also whenever whenever the the power of language um, crops up in a in a conversation I also think of the film Arrival when the protagonist in that i think it might be in a book as well but i've I've only watched the film in the film that she learns an alien language and it changes her perception of the world
1: exactly i think that's really important yeah so ia is very much like that character
0: Mm. yeah absolutely well diana this has been a fantastic conversation thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast
1: thank you so much i had a wonderful time
0: if people want to get hold of uh, your new book or American Cosmic or, or your book about purgatory um, and find out more about you, how best do they do that?
1: I have a website, DW Pasolka, that they can go to. And I also have a Twitter account and an Instagram account, DW Pasolka.
0: Brilliant. Well, I'll make sure to put that information in the show notes.
1: Well, thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Diana. Like many of you, I'm sure, I have been a big fan of her work since I first read American Cosmic. So it was fantastic to get a chance to talk with her about her new book, which is equally as good and definitely worth getting hold of. Please also consider rating this episode wherever you listen and sharing it on social media, as it really helps some other sphere to grow and find new listeners. You can follow Some Other Sphere on X, formerly known as Twitter, Blue Sky, and Mastodon, and subscribe on most of the well known podcast platforms. You can also support the upkeep of the podcast with a donation via Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at SphereHQ, the address is someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, Take care of yourselves and I hope you'll join me again soon for another episode of Some Other Sphere.